Hi, I'm David. I'm Amelia. And this is the Thought Experiment. Yeah, I was wondering about brain-machine interfaces. I've been seeing a lot about these electrodes and brains which somehow can help people with functions that, you know, they used to have. Yeah, yeah. This might not be as topical once we, uh, you know, actually release this episode, but... Yes, there have been some articles about that recently. Before we get started, um, I also just want to give a warning. I might be a little bit sniffly. We uh, fostered a cat that I was very allergic to, and it didn't go well, so sorry about that. Um, You're done fostering? Yeah, we thought we might. We were maybe going to take it, but then I remembered I'm really allergic to cats. Um, so, you, so you gave it to someone else? Yeah, okay. yeah. It was taken in by a nice family. Um, they kept our name for it, which was nice. Okay. <laughs> anyway, right. So, brain machine interfaces. So, um, in general, there have been some some articles recently showing how you know the amazing restorative quality of brain machine interface work. Um, the one that I'm thinking about is a New York Times article that we'll link in the show notes um, that talked about um, giving somebody back the ability to speak um, after they lost it in a stroke by recording from relevant areas um, and trying to ascertain what words they were actually trying to say. Um, another common area that this is used is for paralysis or if something was amputated, how do you give somebody motion back? And sometimes even how do you give them sensation back, somatosensation, um, which is just like the feeling of being able to touch things, like feeling as a sense. Um, so I can give just like a brief overview of like roughly how that works. Very high level. We're not getting super in depth um, because I, I think it's a very interesting topic also to look forward with, like what's going to happen. Um, Is there so, like a term that's good to use of like, it seems like the stage that these folks are looking at are like between behavior or action and the brain signals, but not exactly the like origins of the signal necessarily, but like the outermost electrode. Yeah. Readings. I mean, I think, I think there are they're kind two, of trying to do like the last step. They're like the last step or the first step, basically okay. the last step being like right before somebody is about to speak or about to move. What, what are they, what are they trying to do? What are they trying to move or trying to do? So when we talk about motion, it's sort of recording from areas that are like the motion areas, basically where you're about to move your hand to, or maybe even motion in speech um, for words. Mm -hmm. um, and the the kind of first step ones on the opposite side um, are those that are taking in touch sensations um, or something of that ilk, and um, sending it straight to the the sensory processing areas, basically the the first areas where. Um, stimulus sensation kind of comes into the brain. So, yeah, kind of at the beginning or the end. Okay. I don't know if there's a satisfactory term for that because it's all just, you know, somewhere between the beginning and the end. But sensory mm. processing and, like, motor areas are often what we're talking about. Right. I mean, aren't all behaviors kind of motor? I mean, like some, yeah. To some degree? Yeah. Sorry, for some reason that felt uh, novel to me, like, Speaking is a, mo a motor action. Yeah, I, I didn't actually read the paper associated with the New York Times article, but I believe that's how they're doing it, like looking at like what... Right. Actually, I, I should actually look at that, uh, but... Wh what they said is that they're that they're looking at, yeah, like the... 
I think the motor results on like what action yeah. could it end up being some phoneme or something. Yeah, like yeah, this that makes sense. To... That makes sense. It's been a hot second since I've read that, but. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, looking at what's what you're actually going to do in terms of speech production, not necessarily the idea of like an inner monologue or anything like that. We're not that's, we're not there. <laughs> that's a little harder. Um, yeah, but maybe one yeah. day. Maybe. Well, well anyway, we'll talk you were, about some you were gonna problems. get into some high level. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we've already gone over a lot of it. Basically, your brain is trying to do things, um, whether or not your your body itself is kind of able to do that, whether you have a limb to move or whether you are able to move your body or mouth. Um, you can still have the intent and try to, and that will result in the same kind of, or at least we think similar, um, kinds of neuronal activity in relevant areas. And by relevant areas, I'm I'm just talking like motor here pretty much, different motor areas, um, that correspond to what that motion or speech or whatever that, whatever that behavior would be, you record from those areas and you're recording from kind of large populations of neurons, um, you kind of run that through uh, machine learning, some kind of classifier or something that's telling you what kind of phoneme or what kind of action you're trying to do. Um, I think there are different types of you know, machine learning that they do, but essentially just something that is telling you what you're trying to do. Um, and then that results in either the word appearing or a you know, prosthetic limb acting or just something that is actually restoring a little bit of that function to you. That's just kind of the general overview. Yeah, and the... The model, they said it, it was not perfect by any means. Like, at their mm-hmm. core, they're probabilistic, um, which is that, you know, they might have some 80% confidence that the person's trying to say some syllable, and then from that, they can extrapolate, oh, this comes after the word apple, so it'll probably be picking or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember the exact stats. I think they said, like, 50% of the time the sentences were near to perfectly intelligible and yeah. what the person the person can like type and confirm to the researchers what they mm-hmm. meant to say. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I think that like the the error rate I think is something that sometimes surprises people a little or at least surprises I, I feel like when I talk to people about this in general, mm-hmm. they have this idea that it's just sort of like reading out information that's there. And the problem is like oh, the, like, readout is a little hard. Like, we just don't have enough neurons or it's, like, not quite perfect. Um, But I think there are some much deeper problems to get into that cause a lot more, like, foundational difficulty. And one is is really related to that, which is um, you when you lack a function, when you lack the ability to move your body or to speak out loud, we can't actually record from exactly your brain exactly what it would look like for you to act because you can't act. You can't speak. Um, You want the perfect experiment would be like a clone that you gave one clone a stroke. (laughs) The perfect experiment is an animal model where the animal can actually do those actions. And we we have had brain machine interface work with animals um, where whether they do or don't move, we can train it on like what it looks like when they do move. So you're um, saying that the issue is that humans without a specific disability are not going to consent to electrodes in their brain? I mean, I don't think it's legal, from my understanding, to okay. do brain surgery on, on somebody who's healthy. I see what you're saying. I, uh, was, uh, <laughs> I was confused on what you meant by the ideal. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, sh- I should say so that. So you're saying yeah. that this gives us a lot of information about um, a certain class of people who are lost some ability, but we also want to know what it's like for the norm. I mean, we also want to know, but but also even for those people who have lost that ability, um, what it means for them, for you to try to move your hand if you are paralyzed is 
I mean, it kind of doesn't make sense. Like, if you say try to move your hand, they know full well they can't. Um, they can engage as much as is possible with an attempt to do that. Um, but, you know, there is a little bit of a problem that it's it's purely observation-based and that you the person is working with the technology and trying to get the result they want. Um, and so the, the uh, in some ways the technology is trained on the person. The person is also trained on the technology. Like it takes time for people to figure right. out how to make it do what they want. Yeah, it's not perfect. I'm curious, like, um, the analogy with a computer is not great and we can probably pick apart where it falls because, like, if a computer is running a function, regardless of if it's connected to Wi-Fi, let's say, the outside mm-hmm. world, it'll still, you know, shoot the same electrical signals. Like, because yeah. it's a computer. That's what we expect yeah. it to do. But a human, I'm, you know, I'm talking out of my tuchus here, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure it's established that uh, in a case of, like, a blind patient who maybe has been blind for a long, long time, the brain can kind of repurpose areas which were used for vision. And, of course, it's not going to be, like, yeah, yeah, you're a getting, total... You're getting at something which is another really deep problem. It's, it's, it's not perfect. that it just stays exactly the same like a computer would. Like, the code's not going to change. Yes, and it's not just, like, these big examples of plasticity where you're, like, repurposing things that we're talking about. This happens even when you don't need to repurpose something. So we call this, like, drift. Um where the, the, what the neurons are representing is drifting. Um, so this happens in, I think, most functions um, where you, you can identify a neuron that is responsible for X, Y, Z, um, and you can track that over time, and that neuron will shift. It will no longer be representing X, Y, Z. It'll be representing X, Y, and then A, X, Y, or whatever. It starts to change what it's representing. And so... Which seems by design, like a good yeah. thing for brains to have. Like if you're suddenly in a dark cave, you need to be able to function in a dark cave. Yeah, yeah. And also that I think, you know, the idea that this neuron does this and it's like a, a, you know, perfectly working with everything has these nice semantic labels might not be the best way to think about it, where that's something that that we might intuit, but isn't actually the optimal way to use this, you know, incredibly complex neuronal infrastructure. And so you see these things changing across time. So when I say, like, there's this, you know, machine learning process that's going to decode or classify what's happening, that's not something that you can just train and be done with. That's not something that you can just set up um, because it's something that has to match a constantly evolving, constantly changing dynamic of what's actually happening in the brain. So that's another kind of big um, roadblock when it comes to these technologies. Mm. Well, that's a tough problem to solve because it's hard enough to get one model, but you're asking for like a continuum of models or something that's always self-updating, kind of like our brain does automatically. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. As a tangent, I feel like that's that's a direction that we could explore more with AI. Like, Well, AI has this built in, like there's this evolutionary type AI. But that's during the training phase, right? Yeah, I mean, I... What I imagine you could do is just say, have, you know, n iterations of your model where you continue to train with a day's worth of data or something and then release yeah, different versions. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was making kind of a tangent point less about the brain-machine interface and more about AI in general. That, like, the okay. way we think about it, and, okay, this is, like, not, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just saying shit. But, um, like, we do this thing where we train AI and then we say we're done with it and we're going to ask it to do tasks. And then we go, wow, it's so bad at generalizing. And I feel like one of the key components that we're missing has got to be that like the human brain is, is constantly training. There is no stopping training and then having a complete model. Yeah. Um, it's I think it's one, always repurposing. Yeah, I think maybe, 
uh, my background's not in AI, but I know from the computer science perspective, we look at algorithms, and an algorithm has a set input data and, like, a set output data. So it's not, um, like, a way a Turing machine is defined is it's not getting, you know, some infinite stream of noise, not infinite, sorry, continuous stream of noise um, or stimuli that a brain is and lots yeah. of electric. But a, that's a Turing machine doing. gets a discrete input. It's a symbolic machine. It manipulates some symbols and produces an output. I mean, whether it's discrete or continuous, though, it's about constantly evolving in response to it. And uh, that, yeah. that so evolution like can be predictable, potentially, like yeah. if you're thinking of implementation. For this. Yeah, so, so uh, just to finish my point, just that the... That's why an AI person might think, oh, there's the image classification problem. It's mm-hmm. a set problem, and you train one model, and maybe you just have the model that does image classification. And that's a very uh, idealistic approach. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but I, I think that, that, I mean, that works. You don't even really need, like, modern, awesome AI for that. Like, you can have other kind of classification machine learning type things. But, like, when we think about the question of, like, general intelligence, right. um, that seems like you might need a lot more constant evolution. Right. And I think that the AI person would extrapolate from your point on constant evolution and say yes, and it's just a matter of scale. Like, think of how much... We put so much data into the AI models today, but it's nothing compared to, like, the electrical signals that our neurons receive over 18 years of life to become a fully developed human brain. So what they might say is it's still a static AI problem, we have some mathematical structure, but the training data, it would be like 18 giga Google bytes of a human's life that we could give it or something like that. Like maybe I think that the increasing data, you know, definitely does something that's a big improvement, but like that, from my understanding of the field, that can't be it. Like there has to be something additional. I've seen some people talk about this in terms of like adding causality, like an understanding of causality rather than just pattern matching or like, it, I mean, what I'm saying, which is like have it, you know, constantly evolving or something. I, I feel like I, I haven't actually read that anywhere. This is just me spouting mm-hmm. stuff, but probably someone said it. Um, that, I mean, maybe it is just a feed it more data problem, but my sense is that that's, I mean, if it were I mean, I hope just it's that, <laughs> like. But I think it's possible. I, I'm just saying that you're, um, continuous integration thing, I think that itself could be abstracted and turned into a new form of AI training done over 18 years or something like that. Like, it could just be yeah, a Yeah, potentially. Thing. I, think, I think it's just that, like, what you're saying, like, a form of training, I feel like we, we think of it as, like, there's a training phase and then you have a model and you use your model to do things. Mm-hmm. And that's all well and good for, like, some kind of image classification problem. Um, but... And also earlier when I said, like, you can do that with easier things, I meant, like, simple image classification, like, you know, like, one through nine set or whatever, not, like, all of it. Um, But I don't mean to discredit the field. Um, But uh, where was I? Um, We were doing on whether it's all just data training for AI. Oh, yeah. I mean... I don't think that's likely. I was in the middle of a... Th- Sorry, I had like a long day. <laughs> oh, me too. Um, I think that... I think it's possible. I think it would probably be like computationally intractable in some way. Like our brains are such efficient oh, oh. computers. And, yeah, yeah. And so yeah. It, it's unrealistic to say like, 
oh, just train something with 18 years of data. Like, that's a possibility. Well, I, I don't think that that's even the problem. I mean, we can feed it huge amounts of data at a rate that's much faster than what a human can take in. And, like, again, we could give it more, but it's just, I mean, what I was saying before that I kind of, like, blanked on um, is that I think that, um, oh, my God, I blinked on it again. <laughs> it's okay. I'm really out of it. Um, but the, I think when you talk about, training versus test like that is not how humans work we don't have a training versus test we are constantly training and constantly testing yeah um and i mean the i was training... just gonna make that analogy i'm like isn't a human being just being trained in various ways yes and yeah that's exactly what i'm saying i th- that's the point that i keep getting to like <laughs> mentally off to make that like when we have the training, the training stage of like any ai program like is very similar to what you're doing every day like you are making a guess based on what you've experienced in the past and then that does well or that doesn't. Um, I mean, talking about kind of RL right now, but like that does well or that doesn't and then you adjust based on that. Mm-hmm. Um, or someone tells you you're a bad kid, don't do that. Yeah. Like you, you, you have some feedback. You adjust, you adjust. You get feedback, you adjust. Um, and that is an like integral part of how we're doing things, I feel like, that, you know – as I'm interacting with the world, I'm never done with that. Like, that is, in some ways, a large part of the purpose of any interaction. Um, and that we just treat models as being done. And then then they're a complete model and have to engage with things and interact with things seems odd to me. I mean, if, if you're doing it for a very specific purpose, for something specialized, totally. Like, that that works, that's sufficient. If you're trying to get a generalized model, I, I, it strikes me as a, as a real deficit if it can't be doing that. Um, yeah, I guess I agree. Like, the best models would be able to be constantly updated with new information. Yeah. But I'm not I, sure I, I that that's, like, some, like you know, outside update. of what's possible today. Yeah. Yeah. Like, imagine you have some set of data, we'll call it S, and then your model is done at some day. So this is, like, the part that you don't like. Mm-hmm. Your model's done. And then day S plus one happens, and you gather all your new data, and then you retrain your model on S of I plus one or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is that like good enough? I mean, it's certainly good, not good as enough constant. for what purpose? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I'm just saying that in defense of, I'm not a huge big data. I mean, I don't, I'm not that confident in like ChatGPT, even though it does wow um, and amaze a lot of sci fi people who don't, don't know what they're talking about, who talk very loudly or like invest in companies who are doing, I don't know. Apparently, if you're a company and you just like say you're using AI, a lot of venture capital goes to you now oh. in tech. Interesting. Uh, probably in neuro stuff too. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily good or bad. It's just like hyped. <laughs> and when something's hyped, I, mean, I it's, feel it's a, it's a powerful tool that we're still developing, and we yeah. know that it's going to be but powerful. In, in defense of these methods, if they are like the end of our AI journey, and it's just a matter of scale and constantly updating them with new data. Um, yeah, I mean, it depends what your possible. goals are, what your goals are. I mean, ChatGPT is great at certain things. It's not so great at others. Um, I don't think anyone would call it true generalized AI. Um, and I think that to have AI be able to do the kinds of things that humans can do, like encounter a new game and kind of figure out the rules and do that, right. like you're probably going to want something that's updating as it goes because that's how we do it. I mean, maybe there's a way to have a perfect static model that can do that too, and that would, I think, transcend human ability, absolutely. But for now, we haven't been having that much luck being able... Like, the the big thing that AI struggles with is the ability to generalize, to ability to learn things that are drastically different from its training set. 
Um, yeah, I and mean, so I mean, this seems to be a way to do it. I, I'm, I'm talking I about things I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about, but no, it's okay. I, like some kind of, I just I'm trying to give credit to the AI researchers because I'm pretty sure they've probably thought of all. Yeah, this. I'm, I'm sure they have. <laughs> but I, I, just I, don't I wonder. Really... I wonder if there's something along the lines of what you're saying of uh, some kind of meta procedure that an AI model on day n plus one looks at AI model for day n like, can somehow interact with it directly, throw out yeah. parts it doesn't need, like, the way our brains do when we sleep. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm by... I don't know if we actually know what happens when we oh, sleep. Oh, I but... didn't even fully process that, but... that's That would be my <laughs> guess on what... Like, it's clear, although there are some rare people who, like, have that photographic memory of every second in their life or something. But but... You're just saying, like, memory... Yeah. During... Well, our memory and learned stuff in our brains yeah. is... We, we throw out a lot, is what I'm saying. And that's part of being able I mean, to constantly update. If we accumulated fade. every piece of data and learning we learned in our entire life, you know, it would not be good. Probably not. Um, so some kind of meta thing where an AI could look at a previous I mean, iteration of itself, throw out parts it doesn't need, incorporate the new data, and that could be some I kind of... I think there's uh, also a possibility, and I don't really know, but, like, with AI that it could retain all that and just have... Because I I don't think we deep... I, I, this is not my area, but I would speculate that, like... Part of it has to do with attention and being able to quickly access what's important. Um, that, like, I don't think we would find there to be harm if I happen to remember whatever, like, specific detail from my third grade classroom. It's just that, like, it's kind of attentional. Like, I want to be able to call up the memories that are most relevant to me. Yeah, so um, this is known in computer science. I don't know about AI, but there's something called a cache, which is, like, a program to save efficiency on computation. Our brain does it too. It's just things that are associated would literally physically be closer. Like, it'll put mm, yeah. on the processor, I'm pretty sure there's a physical cache. I might be wrong, but I think <laughs> there's like areas of the memory that are much quicker to access. And okay, so, like, yeah. the lines of the program that will be called more often or memory objects that will mm -hmm. be called are put there. And then long-term things like, I don't know, some file that you never open might still be on yeah, the hard drive. Yeah, that and our brains, I think, do that too with... Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good structure to have. You can't have everything at your fingertips. That's just not how that works um, um, or how that can work. Anyway, we were yes, supposed this to talk is a, about... This is a little bit of a tangent. So <laughs> Brain-machine interfaces. BMI, yes. actually. BMI. But BMI is not, not good. <laughs> so we I do feel like call it's a it BMI. Like really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've heard Well, maybe this, that. if we, instead of using BMI all the time, use this BMI, it would be better for the world. The other BMI being, like, body mass index or whatever? Yeah. Well, what I've heard about it is it's a little outdated. Not like it's using on, in, first off, it's a societal statistic, and people using it individually can cause all kinds of oh, weird yeah, results. Yeah. Like, if you're a bodybuilder or if you're not, like, it was made with data from, I'm pretty sure, Dutch skinny Okay. Men in the 19th century. <laughs> this is a medical thing, though. And then they, like, extrapolated from not that many people to just say, this is the distribution of yeah, weight yeah. It's, in it's, society. When you make it, like, a societal thing, yeah. you're, you're getting at something that you're wanting to measure, but probably not in the most efficient way, I would assume. Mm -hmm. is that, is the, that's what you're saying? Uh, like, the actual idea of measuring weight against height is not a bad idea. It's more mm -hmm. just the curve and where they define the categories of overweight and obese oh, okay. and things like that I see. can be uh, confusing. All right, yeah. There's controversy anyway. Yeah, because like muscle weighs more than fat or whatever, that kind of thing. So like if you're yeah, a, body, if you're a, a bodybuilder, it's like a problem. Um, yeah. I see. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> Not just yeah. bodybuilders, but yeah. Well, I, I, yeah. I, I, I don't know much about this. 
Um, well, me neither. I heard about it in a little podcast. So. Oh, cool. We can do that for someone else then. Game of telephone forever. <laughs> Getting <laughs> yeah. worse and worse. Informed. I mean, you know, I like to peddle information, not misinformation. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's true. I buy it. All right. So Brain BMI. machine interface. BMI. Um, the other BMI. So one thing, I was wondering if you have any questions about future of BMI because I think one of the big things that I hear from a lot of people are like discussions that I just have with people tends to be about like what about like a mind reader thing right and I I, I feel like we've had this conversation a little bit before but I don't quite remember what you've you've asked or talked so. about really have we not no I'm thinking of someone else <laughs> well because it's a very theoretical like our level of measuring measurement accuracy is very well, I guess broad. Like we we're by the way, I wanted to talk more about the implementation. These are mm-hmm. electrodes, which means like is it the same as like EEG measuring? Uh, it's so it's internal usually. So it's internal. so like EEG is you attach electrodes to the outside yeah. and it's you can't really spatially localize things very well because there's a lot of electrical signal happening in the brain. Yeah. Um in fact with EEG you talk about like it's kind of a problem. You could have multiple sources doing things differently that would lead to kind of a similar result uh, or even the same result recorded from externally. But um, if you are actually placing something in the brain, whether that's like a Utah array that's like a a bunch of electrodes that goes over the cortex or like a neuropixel or something like inserted in deeper, basically you you put something in the brain that is able to record um, like directly while in the brain. And um, so it can record... I don't know for like the, the the big sensational articles and stuff exactly. I should have like reread this, um, and my computer is giving me the like paywall because it's not on my phone. Um, but um, you can record, let's say, like a few hundred or so neurons, um, and have that fairly localized to where each kind of component is taking in um, like a few, like from a small enough area that it's like a few neurons or like one or. Okay, so you're not necessarily going to get, like, an 100-bit sequence that maps on exactly. What do you mean by... Like, like know whether all 100 neurons for each one is on or off at a moment. But it's much, much better than the outer brain. You can get pretty close to that for the neurons you're recording. Like, you can get... There's these neurons firing, and and there are ways to like even if you have a clump, like kind of mm-hmm. figure out like who's in that clump, like how many neurons is that? And they're not perfect, but they're pretty good. So like for the most part, you can record from a few hundred neurons and get like spiking data basically. Get this neuron is spiking at this millisecond, at this millisecond, at this millisecond, um, and you can get that for like many neurons. Do you know how these things communicate? Like, do the people have wires coming out of their head, or are they like wireless somehow? Oh, in the human versions, I I don't know actually. Okay. Well, because that's just, and it. Does, I feel like the brain is pretty sensitive. Like, you got to be careful putting things in there. I mean, yes, that's why we don't do this on healthy humans just for fun. Yeah. Or just to figure out. Maybe one more. day, though. I'm still in proponent yeah, of nanobots, <laughs> which I, mean, I apparently are. I, I remember looking them up, and it's, like, not really a thing. But I swear, when I was a kid in, like, science class, all everything was about nanotechnology and nanocarbon <laughs> rings I mean, and it tubes. it is cool. I, I don't know about nano. Like a little nano thing that records in every neuron, yeah. you know. I mean, maybe, probably not. Um, I mean, maybe there could be something there. I do think that, like, I mean, well, I think we'll do, an, we'll do our ethics episode later, but, like, I think that it would be cool to have a world in which we could get brain surgery much safer and, you know, do yeah, things on healthy humans and not have it be a big thing. 
Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know if anyone would disagree with you there. Yeah, I mean... That's just like an... First off, it would be good for brain surgeons. And yeah. it would just be good for... Well, the knowledge. question is, like, how, how safe do you need to get it? How yeah. do you need to make that, like, compensation match? And a lot of questions. I think their human research is hard. Yeah, I mean, like... I mean, animal research is hard, too. There are a lot of restrictions there as like, well. Like, it's possible, and this is a, you know, edgy subject, but it's possible that taking the vaccines could in, incur some greater risk, which, of course, there's plenty of studies which give us very yeah, strong going, statistical... Wait, are you going anti-vaccine? Yeah, I'm going... That? On the fourth episode, we're just going... Okay. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I'm just saying that there are lines where people are like, oh, this is worth the trade-off. Wait, okay. Where I, it might I just, not be personal I just want to get on the... the what is exactly is your anti-vaxxer take? So, there's a risk of just getting COVID without the vaccine, mm-hmm. and then there's the risk of taking the vaccine and having some side effect that might be worse oh, than getting Oh, okay, COVID. okay. I thought you were... Because you were talking about, like, nano stuff. I thought you were going to do a whole microchip direction oh. with this. Um, <laughs> we are, we're not... We're not microchips in the vaccines no. kind of podcast. No, I'm just saying that there is a, there's a line for people where it doesn't need to be 100% perfect. There might be two people with myocarditis or something. I don't know. I don't, that's a or, heart thing. I don't know heart. Uh, just like, you know, very rare side effects, but it's better because for the vast majority of people, yeah, it stops yeah. COVID from being as intense. Or in this case, like, I don't know what benefit you could say well, to people comes from having I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's, not, it's not a direct benefit to It could be a societal person. benefit, I guess. Yes. Or maybe yeah. the nanobots could, like, make you less depressed because they shoot, like, happy neurons signals. <laughs> <laughs> I, you're, you're joking about this, but what you're describing is deep brain stimulation, which is a treatment for depression. Uh, I have pretty bad migraines, and I, I think I've read a little bit about... I don't know if it was deep brain or if it was just there could like be, there are external stuff. stuff. So TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, I think mm-hmm. is what those letters are. Um, is Some kind of also, is that a brain machine interface or is that just like no, a medical device? No, that, so it's not just medical. It's used for like science. You can do you can like um, do temporary lesions and stuff with TMS. Do what um, before lesions? temporary lesions? Temporary. So you know like lesions. That were, sounds bad. <laughs> Wait, I, like a wound. No, okay. It's it, so, you can zap people's brains, like yeah, yeah you can I zap people's brains. So, okay, this is this is a really off topic, but um, with TMS. So, as you may know, in early stages of neuroscience, and um, like lesioning a brain was something that taught you a lot about like what that region does. Lesioning just kind of means yes. fucking up that area um, with that area out of commission. Very tactful yes. surgery was done. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, oftentimes they were accidental, like natural things. You know, like Phineas Gage and stuff. Somebody gets something through their head and they change and you can infer things about what that area of the brain that was damaged was responsible for. And so... What about their soul? We can get into that on a different episode. Um, But what you can do with TMS, which is basically just a way of of stimulating things, is you you can target a certain region, stimulate it in a way that interferes with its functioning so that it can't function, um, and then look at how that person behaves when that region can't really function. I see. So that's what we mean by temporary lesion. Um, and people volunteer to do this. Sorry. I mean, it's sometimes, like, necessary for medical procedures. Like, um, mm. I think it's for, oh, 
epilepsy or something where they have to like you know do surgery or like remove an area or like mess mm-hmm. things up um you may want to know which half of the brain has the more language responsibility um because it's it's you know localized more to one hemisphere and so they'll use tms to lesion on both sides to figure out are you like left hemisphere or right hemisphere dominant for language um, um and I'm, i might recommend a rebranding just to be clear these are not permanent lesions right i mean okay it's a temporary it's not like something that's advertised like oh come yeah. get your temporary lesion like it's something that's used um so for our medical brains, or scientific purpose our brains aren't uh, obviously there's a certain voltage which kills you but like just a little zap in your brain is like fine like doesn't that seem Pretty kind of much. strange like i've, I've that had i've had entire... myself zapped before because so I, I used your brain to, can just distribute the voltage because it goes to where it needs to be. Vo- it's not super high voltage. So what I've done to myself, I used to work in a lab that did um, like transcranial direct current stimulation. That's not a high enough voltage to like cause things to happen. It's sort of, it's more like it makes the area more excitable. Um, TMS is, is stronger generally, um, but... I mean, they keep it at a at a pretty regulated amount where it's not going to cause a problem. Like, if you've had a history of epilepsy, well, I get or that it doesn't cause problems. That's just a question I'm interested I mean, in. It's like how you know our brains are pretty sensitive. Like, if a needle goes through your brain, it's possible you'll be totally fine, or it's possible some I mean, action will be. Permanent. They're they're sensitive, but they're also. I mean, built to deal with electrical stimulation because that's what's happening to them all the time. Another thing to note is that your skull is thick and not very conductive. So whatever you're putting on the outside is like really kind of dampened by that when it goes through the inside. You do have to be aware of like where both your anode and your cathode are, like what is being touched by um, the the current as it goes through. Um, Does it activate neurons as it goes goes through? Like with TMS, I believe it can. Okay. Um, with TDCS, it's not going to be like high enough, really, to to cause. It's a, a funny. Um, yeah, some with, parts with, of neuroscience are just funny to me. Like, I feel like the bluntness of this method is kind of akin to like, if something is stuck in your digestive tract, just like sticking a like stick through, I mean, like, and like fishing around. Like, you know what I mean? Yes. Just because like, the precision that would be ideal to like electrically configure the brain you is so... You can do micro-stimulation, but not as much of a, at a large scale. So micro-stimulation right. is like you're going in and literally you pick out the neuron you want yes. to stimulate and you make it fire. And you can yeah. do that. Um, and you can do that to like great results. There's amazing like results with, of, you know, that in scientific experiments. Um, I mean, TMS is both... I mean, yes, it, it's really blunt. It's really big. It's, you know, targeting something vague. You cannot be incredibly precise. You have trouble going... Um, for things that aren't kind of more towards the surface, like you have trouble trying to figure out if you can target something like deeper in the brain. I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, who knows what path it's going to... I think they're not very good at that. Um, <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, but I don't and, think And also uh, if it can even make it that far, because I mean the current is, is going to be like, it, it might not necessarily make it that far. Right. Um, or they would at need least to not be, directly. I they, mean, uh, yeah, exactly. They would need to be saying. inside the brain, like yeah, which is which is point. what DBS is or what microstimulation is. They get all the way in there. DBS is surgical, so they, they, okay. you have something implanted. Um, that's deep brain stimulation. Oh, DBS. I have another question about these devices. Mm-hmm. You know how they're recording information, like anything recording is interacting with its environment. How do they know? Like, are you talking about like EEG or? Uh, like an electrode like, inside, oh, oh, or like anything. Oh, like a Utah array, or like a like something in the brain to yeah, like BMI. something in the brain. Yeah. Like, does that? 
would the device being on affect the, like, is it a neutral observer? You know what I mean? I or is it like, because it literally, the dev- device to record electrical activity yeah. has to like interact That's a good question. It. I think they like treat it like a neutral observer, but you're right that I, I, I mean, can't or possibly they, be perfect. They, they might just tune it to where it's like at a minuscule amount so that the brain doesn't care. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know that it, I mean, it, it works when they treat it as more or less a neutral observer from what I understand. Yeah, so, but, I mean, they're pretty smart. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think we can trust them. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Maybe there is something that, like, works against that or that, you know, counterbalances that. I don't actually know. Um, mm. It's a good point because it can't be perfectly a neutral observer. But um, Yeah, well, I don't exactly know how we ended up here again. We were going to talk more about BMIs. Uh, well, yeah, I wanted to ask. I think this is more of a... F- I mean, semi-philosophical question. Like, do you think that such a thing is possible? Um, Knowing that... I I, I feel like you don't need to... Yes, I think almost certainly, yeah. But possible... Well, it always questions what you mean by possible. Because I'm like, it might be that, you know, simulating or understanding the brain at a deep phenomenological level is like a computationally insane problem. But I'm not... Yeah, I mean the other kind of possible here. Like, is that... Like, possible in... A thousand years of science or something. Just like possible period, not like likely. Um, well, here, here's the... <laughs> sorry, I'm going to get philosophical. But there's possible like... I mean, that's the point. That's, that's what we're doing. Uh, yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> is it possible to count to 10 to the power of Google? Okay. I, uh, I mean, what do you think? <laughs> okay, but I think the division that I'm, I'm trying to make... Or I, is it what I'm... Like there's a question. I, of I, th- I think what I'm getting at is kind of like metaphysical versus epistemological possibility here. Uh, elaborate, please. Those, like, were, those are big words. <laughs> um, we can debate, and I think it would not be a deeply interesting debate about like whether that's actually going to happen, given like um, the way that things happen to be, and how hard the equations would be to solve, and maybe they're kind of unsolvable. Um, but the question I want to ask is more. Is it, like, assuming we can solve everything perfectly, assuming that part isn't the issue, is it is it a problem that even makes sense to really ask? I see what you're saying. Um, so let's talk about, in principle, given strong enough computers and technology. Yeah, because, okay. Because that's just an open question. Like, it's possible that the brain has, uh, like, like, there's more chess games than atoms in the universe or something that we know of. So, like, in terms of physically solving chess, well, like... Here, here's possible. here's my. Here, I'm I'm just know. I'm just gonna bring up what I think is like the main critique here that I yeah. that I think holds water. And I hope the brain's um, a little more complicated than chess. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yes, probably. It's not some people's brains, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, I uh, here's the main critique that I think is is kind of poses a deep problem here is that when we talk about like genre of thought, these are finite possibilities right, where you might be thinking happy thoughts and you might be thinking sad thoughts and maybe we can find a way to build a nice classifier that'll say, is, is David happy or is David sad based on your brain? And I think that is totally possible. But the domain of possible thoughts for, like, your inner phenomenological experience, your inner monologue, your inner everything, that to me seems problematic in that it is both infinite mm-hmm. and unique. Like, the exact state of my brain and body right now that is producing the current thoughts that I'm thinking has likely never happened before in the history of our universe. Um, Bold claim. 
I, I think that's at least definitely not in the history of humanity we can be pretty confident of. You're so quirky, Amelia. You've never existed before. <laughs> I'm not like other girls. No, I think you're you're right, and this is why I brought up the computationally intractable thing, is I'm like, mm-hmm. the only way I could see it happening perfectly would be something that, like, somehow recorded you from baby till now with, like, all of your learning and but, all of but that. But even then, I'm thinking a thought that I could not have thought yesterday. Like, it, it's, there is novelty there that even if you know exactly what my neurons are doing, you don't know what that exact configuration of atoms actually means in terms of it. Like, even if you can come up with a dictionary of, like, all the past neuronal states and how they all match up to internal thought, um, I don't think that there's a guarantee that you get a new configuration of neurons and you know exactly what that means in terms of internal phenomenology. Like, maybe there's a nice, neat pattern that will allow us to predict, but maybe there isn't. Like, maybe we just have to keep building this dictionary, and the, but, but it won't do anything because the more we build this dictionary, that's great. We know about the past. We don't know about the future. We don't know about the, the entries that aren't yet in the dictionary, and every thought you have is an entry that isn't already in the dictionary. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that's true. I think thoughts are like language and that you it, there is some predictive element to them. But I think the problem with thought is uh, the, the way to actually get evidence. Like, just so we're clear, the same restrictions happen on, to language where, to be fair, language you, you do do a lot more repetitive things, so it's probably mm-hmm. way more conducive. Language is over an infinite alphabet, uh, not alphabet, vocabulary syntax like i can make sentences of an arbitrary length I mean, but oh, oh I see. and sentences. but any sentence yeah. that someone says will be finite just the mm-hmm. same way there might be an infinite amount of thoughts emotions whatever that wobbly stuff is uh mm-hmm. but anything is going to be some finite describable thing at least maybe that's a bold claim but yeah i i i don't know that it's finite though because didn't you say that wait like thoughts like, there might be an infinite amount of possible thoughts yeah. in the thought space as, like, a mathematical set or something. Yeah. But at one moment, you can't have a literally infinite oh, thought. yeah, but I, I'm not worried about that. Like, what I'm worried about is that, right, every thought we have is, is in some ways distinct from every thought we've had previously. Whether, like, you can repeat the same word in your head or something. But, like, I have had I experiences. <laughs> you don't think that thoughts are... I think you can totally have the same thought. But like, I have a same. thought of, like, oh, I'm having a migraine. Fuck. Yeah, but you weren't having that thought in this moment before. You weren't having that thought while receiving the same perceptive input you're currently receiving before. You weren't uh, having that thought while having the memory of the last time. Do you think that when I say I am hungry on Tuesday and when I say I am hungry on Friday, I'm saying different things? I think that, you know, as as humans that categorize this in nice, neat, semantic ways, that's the same. But as an actual reality of what your brain's doing, it's not in the exact same state that it was. Okay. Well, then, so it's you not, might just... It's not the exact same because there's there's different context and you're aware of that. Okay. Well, then I think you might have even a stronger anti, com, uh, anti-representational view of, like, even language where you'd say, even if there was some chat GPT that was, like, insanely good, that say models individually someone's brain um that would not account for the maybe imperceptible differences in context that the words are uttered in yeah i mean i think that the difference so even in those context, aren't really doing language or speech that well well let alone thought it's well it's it's thought that i'm talking about because i think language is a different problem um and you know we've seen this this kind of cheating but really cool way of doing it where you look at like the phonemes people are thinking 
Um, and maybe that there's a way to do that once we get she more specific. I mean, kind of. It's not yeah. like the words you're thinking in the head. It's the phonemes you're, you're about to produce with your with your physical body. Um, but, like, maybe there's a way of doing that, too, with, like, a, a very specific inner monologue somehow, like, far in the future. I don't know. Um, but what I'm getting at is that the actual, like, the the experience, the phenomenon of the experience entails all that context necessarily that is unique. Sure. So I guess your question is whether you could map an experience to like a finite. Yeah, or or, or my concern I think here is that like to be a real mind reader, I mean, I guess it depends what mind reader means. Like maybe you'll get the like words, but to get the actual experience of your thought, like that's going to be different every time. The dictionary for that is going to be somewhat different every time. I don't know. I mean, I could see a pretty good mind reader. Like, imagine some interrogation where it says, this person is thinking exactly this sentence. They're feeling this feeling. They are recalling maybe, maybe. this memory. I mean, because like, you can make those things classifiable. So I think that might be possible. I mean, the brain, in principle, is doing a finite amount yeah, of things I at mean, any one moment, right? Like, imagine yeah. we, you know, this is, again, kind of might just be impossible from the get-go, but imagine you could really understand and name every process in the brain going mm-hmm. on at one moment. Yeah. Then that yeah, would I mean, be good I, I enough. Think, I think thought. you're naming very fair metrics. I, maybe I've been unfair because what, what I'm imagining as like the perfect mind reader is not actually what people want from a mind reader. Like you can do it all the things. It sounds like your mind reader would like just simulate what it is to exist. I mean, yes, that's that's <laughs> okay. what I was gonna gonna bring up that I think. Well, I don't I don't know if we understand that. Well, I think I think or the only way will. to I, and perhaps a good way to get a really perfect pr- prediction of exactly what you're gonna do is have a complete simulation of the universe and see what little mini simulated David does. Yeah, that I seems like the best way to do it. A simulation, um, just like have a simulation of the entire universe, but have it on like 1.5x speed, and then we know everything. Uh, I love 1.5x and 2x <laughs> speed. Um, it annoys everyone around like if I ever yeah. turn on a video people just go oh, yeah. you've said you listen to this it. when you're editing the audio at two times speed right yeah because that's, that's unhinged to me <laughs> well because we're such natural eloquent intelligent people <laughs> we rarely make mistakes so of I just course. I would rather spend half an hour of my time versus an hour mm. okay. I wish if there was a two times speed button in life it would make a lot of Things better. There's a movie about this that with there Adam is? Sandler. Really? Yeah. Well, I think it's like a pause button in that movie. Oh, that's cool. But it's cooler. like the moral is like, oh, if you times two speed when like your relationship's going bad, you might not realize that the bad times still meant things, you know? Or like yeah. people fast forwarding just for their hedonism. Hedonism? hedonism? I say hedonism, but I don't know. You made fun of me for stimulating. Um, so yeah, these are still things that weird me out about being a thinking <laughs> human is the the like way we can imagine these possible worlds like a world where some individual person could control time or something yeah. like that that's actually very intuitive yeah and that imagine. that is a very hard thing to classify or categorize when trying to read your mind yeah your speculative idea about these kinds of worlds i don't know i mean i don't do you think that and, and i i get we got that way you're what you're gesturing at by mind reading is some kind of just basically well, you're you're getting a whole okay conscious. yeah I'm being unfair but let's let's I don't let's, think it's necessarily no no unfair. just dialing it back even I think the creativity is a kind of a good point like 
we would have to have there to be, be some kind of regularity, like something that makes things really predictable um, based on your brain. And I'm not – like this is not a claim about like, oh – maybe the mind is something different that no, 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 like even if the material is purely what's causing all of your phenomenal phenomenology, all of your sensations and your experience, there seems to me no reason, or at least it, it's a possibility that that just matches up randomly or semi-randomly or in a way that we cannot express through like a nice semantic rule that makes us feel like, oh, we haven't seen this exact brain state before, but you're coming up with a brand new idea and we know exactly what it is. It doesn't seem obvious to me that that's necessarily the case. Like mm-hmm. maybe it's just not that predictable. Maybe it doesn't have a nice semantic rule that you can express in a beautiful few paragraphs of a textbook or whatever. Well, I definitely doubt that um, you could express it. As a simple rule. Well, or I even think an the, intelligible thing. Yeah, but like intelligible is what I'm going at. Maybe you plug it into some crazy, you know, this is solver. A, but like I was reading about this stuff today of like um and this is kind of a another mind breaky thing to think about is like we as humans live in the world of intelligible language and computation and even math, where like even the most abstract, abstract math um is never gonna deal with like things of size 10 to the Google or whatever, some insane mm-hmm. number, uh, it might be like an inductive thing that accounts for that. Like that's what's my math people love, abstraction and generalizing, mm-hmm. is it lets you talk about big things, even though as humans, when do we interact with numbers bigger yeah. than like 20? Um, point being is that there's a huge space of things that you can actually prove like that we'll never know. And, and the space of math that we can even talk about is not like, all of what we feel to be that math should be. Um, So it's possible that thoughts are on some complexity level of... Yeah, that we just can't... Like, we only hold small things in our minds and that maybe all there is is the pattern. And we just have nothing to say about it besides this is the pattern. Yeah. There's no, like, nice way to make that intelligible. That, like, just language and emotion, that that isn't enough to an internal representation of language isn't enough to describe what it is to think because like but i feel like, like, an, like any picture thought some, picture something any like, thought is in relation to some kind of system that we've mapped on like if i picture something that's just me i i don't know if that's even thinking that's like recalling a sensation yeah maybe that's not thinking but you can picture something you haven't seen um Right. And how do we know, like, what you're doing with that? Like, I, I mean, maybe you don't include that in your mind reader, and that's a great way to go about it. But is like, imagination the same as having a thought? I yeah, feel like if I'm picturing, or at least it's something you might want to know about somebody. So that's something like a creative recombination of, of previous stimuli that's recorded in the brain. Yeah, like, yes, but I don't know that that's an easy thing to understand. No, that sounds, like, really hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... Yeah. As a materialist, you should be committed to the fact that it's all in the brain I actually, I've, I've been potentially changing my mind on this. Okay. Well, as we wrap up the episode, let's, I mean, you, <laughs> oh, if no, you want to I, th- I think your... it might be another, wor- worthy of another conversation. Well, give a like, um, sneak, t- sneak peek. I've been thinking more about how I, I don't think we actually have a proof of that things are physical or material. And I have not. been thinking about some ways in which science itself and the empirical pursuit of physical knowledge requires us to implicitly assume a lot of non-physical things. Um, 
it's not a disproof of materialism, but I think that we're we're implicitly assuming a non-material world as in order to try to investigate the material world in some ways. Do you mean by non-material like mathematical laws or something? Something kind of similar to that. It's like a, it's like a longer discussion for another day, sure. but kind of in that vein. Well, I think any system of understanding the world has axioms and it's good to interrogate the axioms every now and then. I don't know any principle except the principle of, like, simplicity. Well, okay, so. well, one thing I will say is that I think you and I both are acknowledging here there's no proof that it, the world is material. Like, we don't actually know. And of a lot not. of people no in science circles... A God doesn't exist. There's right, no yeah, but a lot of people in science circles... That's not what proof means. A lot of people are acting as though it's a given when it's not a real given. Well, it's an axiom for them. I don't think, I, I definitely don't take it to be an axiom. Okay. Well, you, by doing neuroscience, you are. No, I don't think I am. Um, okay. Well, we might just disagree on that. No, like, no, no. To, to investigate the physical world is not the same thing as making the assumption that all is physical. And I think that's important. Oh, I, also, okay. I, I didn't I, mean I, that. I, I just I, meant that physical things, that material things exist. Oh, that's not what materialism means. Um, sure. I thought that's what we were talking about. Oh, God. Yeah, no, no, no. I, th- I, th- I think there are things. You were talking about proofs that everything is material? Yeah. Yeah. Obvi- I mean, there's not going to be a proof that there is such a thing as material. Like, these are all just metaphysical definitions. No, that I, start I, with. I know, but I... Okay, I mean, I don't actually necessarily assume... I'm, I'm taking... Or what even is a proof? Okay, th- this is this is too long for sure. the end of the... Like, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're already going over what we thought we would do for this episode. Um... We can and should talk about this on a different podcast. Though, yeah, because we should I have do some foundations of science. Yeah, well, yeah. I I would love a metaphysics episode. I have a lot of takes. I think you I have a lot of takes. I don't have. I pretty much have none because well, that's I think fine. It's an, I have a lot of takes. I think it's and I'll an unknowable, unknowable area where the only principle that you could have, which again has no justification, is something like simplicity is better. But like, ju- there's absolutely I mean, no, there no is an evidence, amount of arbitrary. No there there is an arbitrary produce. nature to like what you're choosing as your kind of starting point. But the, I, I mean, you know, it's it's fine that you don't have takes. I have takes. We'll talk. <laughs> I mean, my take is uh, something that allows for science and empirical evidence to be important. I'm not mm-hmm. sure about the immaterial stuff because it's literally by definition you can't be sure. <laughs> I mean, you can't be sure about the material either. Yeah, that's I, I meant by. Starting points, like presuppositions to a theory. I don't take either of those as like an axiomatic point. What? Like material or non-material. Yeah. I think we're dealing with perception. Like, okay, th- th- I mean, again, this, this, this is warrants a much longer conversation, okay. but like we are starting, if we're starting at the beginning, what we have is our perceptions. Not a material world, not necessarily a proof of a non-material world either. We have our perceptions, and I think that's the real starting point. Okay. Like, you are a thinker that is perceiving. Um, so you're saying that we exist? Do you have a given proof the, that we have Given exist? the supposition of logic, yes. What? How does logic prove that we exist? Because then if you have logic, you can do the, like, I think, therefore I am, like, cogito argument. I don't think that's a proof. I think that that is logically sufficient to believe you exist once you've supposed that logic is the arbiter of reality. Arbiter. What is reality? 
Like that is a, that is a term defined within the like you have to take as your kind of starting axiom something. This is a, okay. That's all I'm saying is just you're taking a starting axiom. Of course, and I someone am. can absolutely. That's, that's take. what I mean by like a starting supposition. And it's good to. I, do, I, I It's good to acknowledge where some people might just say it's obvious. It's good to say, of course, as a scientist, whatever we also have this our axioms. This is a just scientific a, point. This is a philosophical point. I'm and not saying it's a scientific point. I'm saying that if you are. A mainstream scientist, generally, their philosophy would include materialism, and it's good to acknowledge that that is an axiomatic position. It does not come from like. I don't think a for proof. I don't think for most people it's an axiomatic position. I think for most people it's something that they believe to be far more likely than the alternative. They make claims. That's not the same thing as an axiom. Um, I, I, I don't necessarily un- think these claims are are correct, but I think that's how most people would frame it. Uh. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I agree with that. I think I've been getting confused in this conversation of just thinking yeah, we'll, about we'll whether a... material exists and doing the confusing that with the universal claim. Because I think a lot of scientists would say, well, you could have as an explanation that an immaterial thing magically affected every physical situation, but let's stick to the material explanations because, and then they have some. Yeah. I mean, the science's domain is the domain of like the material. That much I think we can agree on. Okay. Um, I, I'm taking a neuroscience of consciousness class now, actually, that might might have some disputes. We'll talk about that later. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think we can have a much longer episode on this. I think it's a really fruitful topic. Yeah, and I'll um, be the grounded voice of reason. I'm excited. Okay, all right. Um, but for now, yeah, thank you for talking with me about this. Thank you. Um, thank you all for listening. Um, and keep your thoughts undecodable. <laughs> okay, we didn't even talk about that at all. No, like the idea that you can, um, like more novel or creative thought might be harder to decode. Ah, yeah, I got what you're saying. Yeah, keep your thoughts on decoding. Okay, well, I'll see you all next time.